let's get to the Word. Um, take our Bibles. invite you to turn with me. We're in Genesis chapter 15, and uh, we're looking at verses 7 through 20. 7 through 20. And uh, if you're using the church Bible, and there's plenty in the room for you to help yourself to if you didn't bring a Bible of your own or prefer not to use your phone. I uh, personally like paper in front of me, so uh, that's my preference. Uh, chap- uh, chapter, page um, se- uh, 10 through 11 is where you'll find that in the church Bible. All right, let's give our full attention to the reading of the Word of God. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. I trust that you are thankful that we get to freely attend to it. I need divine help, and uh, so do you in this time, so I invite you to pray with me. Father, in this time of proclaiming your word, uh, we know that uh, a mere man cannot accomplish the things of God. I'm merely a messenger. And uh, what we need is to hear from you. And so, Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would plant your living and active word in our hearts, that you would accomplish in us what we can't do for ourselves, what only your word can do to make us wise to salvation, to sanctify us, that is to make us more holy in the very truth of your word. So, Lord, to that end, help me speak clearly and undistractedly, and give us all that presence of mind and the readiness to hear from you, knowing, Father, that it is your voice that needs to break through. So please accomplish this now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As Christians in the world today, we're kind of in-between people. We're in-between we, we look back on the cross of Jesus Christ and we see what was accomplished there. We know the promises that the Lord Jesus himself has made. 
and we hold to those promises that one day he will return. But we're in between because he has not yet come back and we do not fully enjoy that which we possess in Christ. There's coming a day when Christ will return and, and all people everywhere on this planet will acknowledge him to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But that's not yet. And so we're in between people. And I say that because as we look at our text this morning, um, there's that sense of, of there's a promise out there, but we have to wait for it. And what Abram gets is a, is a confirmation of the promise. Now, in this Bible text that we read together, I just want to help frame it for how we, how we think about it when we read it or, or have it read to us. Uh, the, the way to consider this Bible text uh, is to, and, and really all of Genesis is in fact the rest of the Pentateuch, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that it's really one book with five different major sections. Think of it from the perspective of the original audience. That original audience was the tribes of the 12 sons of Jacob, the, the Israelites. They had spent a generation wandering around the desert, and now they're about to cross the Jordan River. They're about to settle in the land of Canaan, that land that was promised to Abraham, their forefather, the one we just read about in our Bible text. And so Genesis is really the record of how they became a people. And it began with God giving them uh, a garden in this land called Eden. Them losing that because of their own sin and their rebellion against the Lord. And then the Lord leading them through the centuries to the place where they would ultimately possess it again. And here they are, on the verge of possessing it again. So what I want to do this morning as we unpack this part of, uh, this part of, uh, of Genesis, I, I want us to see how God has confirmed his covenant through um, three aspects that I'm going to use kind of as headings here to, to organize our thoughts. Uh, how God has confirmed his covenant through the exodus and I know we're not, in, we're not in the book of Exodus, but you'll see what I mean in a moment. The Exodus, secondly, the sign, and third, there's the aspect of the waiting, which I've already made reference to. And I want you to see how, how these three aspects describe not only Abram's experience, his own experience, but later really the, the whole of the nation of Israel, but also for us today as the people of God, as Christians living in the world today. So that's where we're going this morning. So three headings, uh, the exodus, the sign, and the waiting. First of all, the exodus, the exodus. Now, uh, most of it has, has faded, but there are some ways in which the things I say and how I say them betray the fact that I'm from Canada. Every now and again, someone will point out to me uh, how I use the words out, house, and about. And if you want Canadian lessons, those three words must be mastered. Out, house, and about. Now, it's the same way that we can detect uh, when somebody perhaps is from North Dakota or, or Minnesota or Western Wisconsin. You might hear, oofta. Do any of you say that? Well, if you're from there, you say it. Or, ya sure, you betcha. If you're from Boston, you might be heard saying, I'm taking the car. I go to Havid. And to describe something as wicked good. You know, if you're from that area, you, you know that. Now, where, where, where you and I are from in this sense is really nothing more than a matter of geography, right? And, so, and some minor linguistic differences. 
and we know this, there's no, there's no moral distinction between Toronto, Boston, and Fargo, right? There isn't. But for Abram, where he was from was more than geography and language. Where he was from said something about his allegiances, former, said something about his culture, but most importantly, said something about the one to whom he bowed the knee, the one he worshipped. Uh, look at verse 7 of our Bible text. The Lord announced himself, okay? And he reminded Abram where he came from. He said, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Abram's in the land of Canaan, but he doesn't, he's not the owner of the land. He's still sojourning. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Well, first of all, I am the Lord. And what the Lord is saying is that that is to say, this is his divine name. I am Yahweh, the self-existent one, the God who is. And of course, this would be contrasted with, <coughs> with every other so-called deities who are merely figments of the worshippers' imaginations. I am the Lord. And he says to him, this is what I've done for you. Who brought you out of Ur, out from Ur of the Chaldeans? Now, why is this significant? Ur of the Chaldeans was situated east of Canaan on, a, on an area called the Plains of Shinar. Now, if we look back a few chapters, this is where Babel was. Babylon. We look back to G Genesis chapter 11. In fact, that's where we find it. And what Babel or Babylon represents in the scriptures is, is really that, that civilization that is built, which is away from God. Now, you remember in Babel, they built a tower unto their own name. Let us build a tower that, that goes up to the heavens, and we will make a name for ourselves. And God frustrated their plans because it, they were self-aggrandizing. They were away from the Lord in the east. It was a pagan, God-rejecting, flesh-indulging culture. The Lord said, I called you from there, Abram. See, when Abram was called, he was an idolater probably living like every other Chaldean or Babylonian. In fact, in, according to Joshua 24, too, he served other gods. That's what we're told in the scriptures. So, so the Lord's call on Abram, on his life, was to leave his country, leave his kindred, leave his father's house. I'm setting you in a new place, Abram. Now you're allied with me. You are my guy. You belong to me. Genesis 12, 1, that call set Abram apart as to the Lord, unto the Lord. Set apart to worship and serve the Lord. Set apart to fulfill something in God's plan to pave the way for what was revealed back in Genesis 3.15, the, the seed of the woman. Now, if you remember there, the, the curse on, on the serpent. And the Lord said to the serpent, there will be the seed of this woman, Eve. You will bruise his heel but he will bruise your head. And so Abram had a part in revealing this seed of the woman who is ultimately the Christ. So he was set apart for that purpose. The Lord calling Abram was really a divine rescue. That divine rescue in the call of the Lord ultimately revealed the very peril that to this point Abram was unaware of, or to that point, I should say. 
He was unaware of the peril he was in. He was unaware that he was far from the Lord God. And the Lord called him. He told Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of her. I took you from worshiping dead idols. I made a promise to you, and I will keep it. And what this was, just in that simple announcement, this was a reminder from the Lord to Abram of God's grace. Now, the Lord wasn't shaming Abram. He was reminding him of the consequences of living far away from the Lord. And in that reminder, he could certainly give him numerous offspring and then ultimately give his offspring a land of their own. If we just pause here, that story would seem remarkably familiar to the Israelites who are about to cross the Jordan and possess the land. That story would be remarkably familiar to their more recent history. They had been rescued, not from Ur, but from Egypt. In that great exodus, the Lord called them out of Egypt. He led them to the place where they were standing, ready to take the very land that was promised to Abram. The Lord had proven faithful to Abram. He had been faithful to the Israelites. And listen, as we think about application for ourselves, he has been faithful to us as well. We who are the offspring of Abraham by faith in Christ, he will be faithful to us as well. Abram needed to be rescued from Ur. The Israelites needed to be rescued from Egypt, and we likewise need to be rescued from the eternal consequences of our sin. We need that rescue. Don't think that there's some kind of neutral existence before the Lord God, that somehow, well, well I'm not as bad as that guy over there, or I don't, I don't break a lot of laws, I'm pretty good. That's not how it works. We all are born and stand in the place of being condemned before the Lord because of our sin. And God presents to us His Son, crucified and risen. We need a rescue. So remember where you came from. That's not to wallow in regret, but rather to remember. Remember the amazing grace of God. You see, where you came from is not a question of geography. It's a question about the state of your heart. And I'm sure of this. There are some here this morning in this room, or some perhaps watching on the live stream, you're still in Babylon. You're still wandering in the east. You're still in your spiritual Egypt, enslaved to that, to that master called sin. Hear me. Sin will kill you. It will take you to hell if you don't find an exodus. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter. Listen to these words. And they stab. They stab like a, like a knife. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. That doesn't sit well with our culture nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's, that's not an exhaustive list. The point here is that sin will take you 
to hell. You will not inherit the kingdom of God if it's on you. So if that is you, you need to see the way out. You need an exodus, and that exodus is Jesus Christ. So look to him. He will lead you to the promised land. And that's not geography. That promised land is fellowship with God through Christ. Look to Christ. Now, for the rest of us, we remember where we came from. And while now we enjoy this fellowship with God through Christ, we shouldn't forget His grace. And we're going to be reminded of that grace as we, we share in the Lord's table a little later. Now, I read that passage in, in, in 1 Corinthians 6. That sample list is a, really a death list of sins. They keep someone from inheriting the kingdom of God. But this is what the Apostle Paul writes to those same people who he says, and he says this, listen. After saying, all of these things will keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. And he says to them this, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Hear that, such were, not are, such were some of you. And what did Jesus do? He became the way for us out of Ur. He became our rescue from that spiritual Egypt. He washed us through his own blood shed at the cross. He sanctified you, which means he set you apart for himself, just like God set apart Abram. And he, listen to this, he justified you. Not because you were able to clean yourself up. No, he justified you because you believed in him. And when you believed in him, he no longer counted your sin against you, but counted it against his own son. And you were counted righteous, just like Abram was when he believed. You, in Christ, in Christ you have been called and set apart to worship and serve the Lord and to be the, the living proof that the seed of the woman revealed to Eve, that is the Christ, you are living proof that he has indeed crushed the head of the serpent, who is Satan. That's why we exist. That's our exodus. Second, I want to look at the sign, the sign. This came to my mind as I was thinking about this. Sign, sign, everywhere a sign, blocking up the scenery, breaking my mind. I know, a little levity here. Well, that lament by the, uh, if you remember them, you've got to be old enough for this, the five-man electrical band. So that lament notwithstanding, we really depend on signs, I think, right? We could complain that they litter up the scenery, they break our minds, there's so much that they're telling us to do, but we depend on signs. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, took an accidental road trip to Waco. I say accidental road trip because we had flights that were canceled an hour before we had to get on them. Um, anyway, on our drive, the road signs proved to be very helpful, very helpful. And when we got there, a question in our minds, how much is this shabby chic thingy at Magnolia Market? Look at the sign. There it is. There it is. We depend on signs. A sign has meaning, right? Because it points to something ultimately outside of itself. Sign isn't the thing. It points to something else. Now, signs can be physical things, like, like road signs, that they point to physical realities. But signs can also be events and images that, that point to concepts and events 
yet unseen or not fully understood. So I'm broadening our, our, our understanding of signs. Now, Abram, in our text, Abram had a question for the Lord regarding his promise of offspring. Children, many children. Their offspring possessing the land of Canaan. Verse 8, our text says, He said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, we've got to be clear on something. God's word to Abram would have been sufficient. That, that he told him you would possess it, that should be sufficient. But the sign that the Lord gave answered more than what Abram was asking. In fact, it answered things that Abram needed to know. Abram needed to understand not only that his descendants would possess the land that he is standing on, but who would guarantee that he would possess it. And that's an important thing. So there are really some important things that happen in this sign, and we'll get to what the stuff is. But first, Abram is told what to do. That's verses 9 through 11. So he gets these animals. They're fully grown, three years old. They're clean animals. We find that out later. A heifer, a female goat, a ram, turtle dove, young pigeon. That's what he's supposed to get. He cuts the livestock in half, separates the pieces side by side. Now he doesn't do that to the birds. So what we have here is, is animals killed. Then they're acceptable for sacrifice per se, but, but I don't want you to think that this is a sacrifice. Now, I take it here that Abram's participation is really a way of preparing him. Okay? The Lord says, go get these animals. He cuts them in half. Right? That, that would have taken some time. I, I, I take it as a way for, for the Lord to prepare Abram to pay close attention. Something important is going to happen. And maybe all the while he's wondering, what, what's the Lord going to do? What's the Lord going to say? Or what's the meaning of this? Maybe he does have an inkling of the meaning of this. He may be already familiar with what, what the whole process of cutting them in two is regarding. Now we're going to get to the sign here. Abram's done his part. He's even driven away the vultures. Now the Lord takes over. Now you look at verse 12. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So the Lord puts him into this deep sleep and a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. That's a, feels like a very solemn moment, doesn't it? So what's going on here? That dreadful and great darkness. Now, I've read this so many times before, and initially I was thinking it was describing maybe a feeling that Abram had, you know? Like it was a, you know, what the mystics used to call the dark night of the soul, that sense of foreboding. I now think it's actually something physical, a physical phenomenon, like literal darkness, maybe like a, a thick cloud or smoke. And, and I take it, from the witness of the rest of Scripture, I take it that this is really representing the glory of the Lord. Now, it could be, it could be that that smoke or darkness is what the Lord sends to shield Abram from directly beholding his glory. Exodus thirty three twenty. A man shall not see me and live, the Lord says to Moses. But maybe that, that darkness, that, that thick darkness, is simply a manifestation of God's glory. And we'll give you some examples in Scripture. Exodus 19, 18. At the giving of the law, smoke engulfed Mount Sinai. So it was both a shield, so that people wouldn't come near, but also really a picture 
of the Lord's glory. And the, and the people there were so, so very terrified by the sight that they wanted nothing to do with it. And so they really requested Moses be the guy. You, 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 just, you hear what the Lord says and you just tell us. We're, we're cool with that. So it's ominous. It's, it's, it's foreboding, yes, but it's physical. Second Chronicles 7, 7 uh, King Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem. Fire consumed the sacrifice, and, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple so no one could enter. Back in Exodus 40, the, the cloud descended on the tabernacle, the tabernacle that, that was built in the wilderness at its dedication, preventing any, anyone from entering. The, the darkness, the cloud. And we skip all the way to the end of the Bible. In Revelation 15, the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary. Isaiah 30 says, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury. His tongue is like a devouring fire. Now, what's the point? Piling on all these verses, God is manifesting his glory to Abram, and it's a dreadful darkness. And I take it it's that kind of dread. If you've read the book of Isaiah, it's that dread that he experienced in his own vision of the glory of the Lord. Yes, in a vision when he said, woe is me, I am undone, which means I'm a dead man. The Lord came near to Abram. Part of the sign, right? But at the same time, Abram could not presume to be familiar with God. Who God is in all of his awesome glory and power demands that his people come before him in absolute humble Reverence, the book of Hebrews chapter 12 says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, the writer tells us, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, next, after that, so there's that dread that he feels and sees. Next, Abram is told about some things of the future. And so we're, we're going to deal with that later. But right after that, verse 17, what happens next? Verse 17, we see, when the sun had gone down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, when I read it, you're probably thinking, what is the deal with that? It's a strange, strange scene. It certainly needs some explanation. So there's, what's the significance of this? Well, first, we see this smoking pot and flaming torch. This is a theophany. It's a visible manifestation of the glory of God. A theophany is something to see God's glory when we can't see his person or his form. You can't see the form of God. He is spirit. So he provides this, this thing, this phenomenon, which represents his glory and indicates his presence. So the, 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 the smoking fire pot and flaming torch. And I see here an analogy between this scene and if you recall, if you've read through Exodus, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of cloud by night. Cloud, darkness, fire at night. That accompanied the Israelites after the Lord led them out of Egypt. I see an analogy between these two. And again, in the wilderness, as the Israelites wandered around there, the Lord leading them from place to place, they could not see the form of God, but this theophany represented His own glory and presence among them. And I take it that that's what's in view here for Abram. 
We can't see the form of God. Now, let's look at what happens. This smoking pot and flaming torch now pass between the halves of the slain heifer, the female goat, and the ram. And so what is the meaning of this? Now, some of you know what this is. But the cutting of animals and passing between them was a covenant ritual. And it was probably very common. So that's why I said earlier that perhaps Abram had an inkling of what was going on here. So in the case of an agreement between two equal parties, the animals cut in two, both parties would walk between the parts of the slain animal, indicating that they would keep the terms of the agreement that they had, whatever it is. Or, if they didn't, they would suffer what happened to the animal. That's basically it. So you pass through. If I don't keep this deal, may I be like that animal. We just walk between. We see a, a, a biblical explanation for this. Uh, but, but if there's a weaker party, so if this is an unequal covenant, it's really the weaker party that then passes through while the stronger party observes. Yeah, you will keep this deal, or may you become like that animal. Example from Jeremiah, the Lord says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. There's biblical explanation, Jeremiah 34, 18. Now, perhaps you've already seen it. Perhaps you've, you're on to this. What is absolutely startling about this sign is that the smoking fire pot and flaming torch representing the very glory of the Lord and the presence of the Lord, that passes between the parts of the animal as Abram observes. Now, Abram gets it if he's been accustomed to this covenant as the weaker, infinitely weaker party in this deal. He should pass through. But Abram is not obligated to anything. He has no part, no part in upholding the terms of the promise. So this is so beautiful here. Brothers and sisters, look at this. The sign was not only the affirmation that the Lord indeed would give the land to Abram's descendants, but that the Lord took it upon himself to keep the obligations of the covenant. It didn't depend on Abram doing anything at all. Can you see how significant this is for Abram? How will I know that I possess it? The Lord says, I'm guaranteeing it. And to prove it, I'm passing between. Now, it's impossible for the Lord not to keep his promise or keep a covenant. But for Abram, this is a startling image. And brothers and sisters in Christ, it should appear to us as an absolutely glorious thing. In one sense, it looks like God is humbling himself. Now, we'll get to that. The Lord affirmed Abram's faith back in verse 6 of the same chapter, simply for trusting him. Abram was counted righteous in the Lord's sight because of his faith, not because of anything he did, right? And to be sure, this is true, genuine faith on Abram's part, genuine faith on anyone's part, ultimately issues forth, produces a desire and, a, and an actual obedience, a trust in the Lord that, that shows up every day in the things that we do. But those things that the righteous, those who are counted righteous in God's sight, those things that they do are not the ground or the foundation 
of the Lord justifying them. They're just the fruit. The ground of being called righteous in God's sight is what God has accomplished in simply believing it. Now we fast forward to the Israelites. What did they do to be rescued from Egypt? They simply watched. They watched as the Lord performed great signs. Psalm 136 says, with a strong hand and outstretched arm. That's how the Lord did it. That's the arm of the Lord, not Moses. It was the Lord's plan. It was the Lord's power that accomplished Israel's deliverance. Now that sign, that sign that the Lord gave to Abram, and I think you can see this, it points to a much greater reality. See, it's a sign for us beyond what it was for Abram. For Abram, it points to the land of Canaan. For us, it points beyond the land of Canaan to that which assures our deliverance from our spiritual Babylon and our slavery in Egypt. It points us to Christ. Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of God bearing the full consequence of us not keeping covenant with God. Get that. Jesus is the embodiment in dying on the cross of us not keeping the covenant with God. The smoking pot and flaming torch passed between the halves of the slain animals. God guaranteed in himself Abraham would inherit the land or his descendants. You think about this. What did we do? What did you and I do to ensure our own salvation? What did we do? Nothing. Nothing in advance. For our sake, Jesus was condemned to die. It was a vicarious act, that is to say, in our place. Philippians 2 tells us Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I said a moment ago, that in the, the, the smoking pot and the flaming torch passing between the parts, it was as if God humbled himself. That pointed forward to what Christ would accomplish at the cross in humbling himself. The scripture tells us that he himself bore our sins. He, Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. To what end? That. That we might die to sin. Die to it. That is to say, it no longer has mastery over us. And live to righteousness. God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, see the sign beauty and the glory and the wonder of what was accomplished at the cross. Finally, we get to the waiting. The waiting. Uh, I like road trips. I like driving. I like long road trips that span several days in several states, and particularly if there are roads and places we've not been to before. Kathy, on the other hand, is not a fan. 
But she was a trooper on her trip to Waco. I think you know this, parents, long road trips with young children are delightful times that are character-forming for both children and parents alike, right? But at some point, you know you're going to hear the question, are we there yet, right? Now, I'm not throwing Kathy under the bus. After 10 or more hours in the car, Kathy might have said, are we there yet? It was a gift to me that we took the road trip. But we get this. Long, long journeys involve patience and waiting. We do. That's what we teach our children in the car. Are we there yet? No. We've got to wait. Abram was promised the land he was living in, but Canaan was not his yet. He was a, a sojourner, and that's basically somebody who's living under the hospitality of another. But someday, this very land he's standing on would belong to his own descendants, but they would have to wait. And then the Lord gives Abram some amazing detail. He is told, this is verse 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. Now, the Lord's telling Abram about a different land, okay? They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, what Abram is told, that his immediate descendants, and understand, he doesn't have any yet, right? But his immediate descendants, they won't possess the land right away. And also, more than that, they will also live 400 years somewhere else. Now, the Israelites hearing this, and I mentioned at the beginning, the Israelites hearing this are about to cross the Jordan. They understand that sojourning was in Egypt. That was 400 years. But this wasn't just a prophetic word to Abram about the land where they would find a home, but also that the Lord would use Abram's offspring as an instrument of judgment against the land that is not theirs, which is Egypt. And we see from history, and again, the Israelites about to cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan. They had plundered the Egyptians. In fact, they were so, they were so exasperated, the Egyptians, that they said, just go, go, go. Our firstborn have been killed. Here, and take some stuff, whatever you want, go. But that they would also be, and Abram was being told us, that the Amorites, that is to say, of the land of Canaan, they would be a judge, an instrument of judgment against them, the ones presently, or the ones who are in the land of Canaan, as the Israelites are about to cross, those Amorites, their sin has not reached its zenith. So the Lord would use the Israelites to judge them as well. See, see what, what the Lord has done, He's taken Abram's question, He's given far more than He's asked. But here's the thing, in the midst of that, there would be suffering. He's told. They would be afflicted 400 years. That's a long time. People would be born and die in affliction and experience nothing of what was promised. But that did not nullify the promise. And that's important. Now understand this. Future generations mattered far more to ancient peoples than they do to us. I don't know. Have you ever spent much time thinking about the children born 
to your own descendants long after you've died? Have you ever thought about, like, the ones that, I, I've never done that. Maybe you've done that, but I, I've never done that until I was studying this. But they thought about those things. And of course, Abram would tell this story of what he heard from the Lord to his son, and that would be passed from generation to generation. But I, I just can't help but think how often the Israelites thought, are, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And maybe it's even possible that the Israelites, especially as they were suffering, suffering in Egypt, they were, they were so oppressed and so burdened by the Egyptians that they just put their heads down and they forgot to tell the story. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we have Christ crucified and raised. We have that. We look back to the cross. We see what was accomplished there. It's this fact of history. And if you've trusted in Him, you know that your sins have been forgiven. You know that you have the promise of eternal life. And that promise is not just some disembodied spiritual existence. No, it's a, it's a forever home right here. Right here. But this place, this planet, cleansed and renewed, devoid of destruction, we will be here in resurrected bodies. But we're in betweeners. We still live in this world today the way it is where most everyone around us does not recognize that Jesus is the king forever. And maybe there's some here this morning that don't even acknowledge that truth. Christians, we feel oppressed by this world. This world that hates Jesus. This world that hates God's word. The world around us that lives like they are a God to themselves. And we experience suffering of all kinds. There's disease, there's anxiety, there's disappointment, there's loss, there's grief. And we've got it pretty good in this part of the world, right? So sprinkled in, of course, that stuff exists with, with good things. Jobs that pay well and our families and reminders of, of God's good grace in just meeting together like this, completely free to do so, having the opportunity to love and, and be loved. But I think, I think you read the Bible, you read what is promised for us, you long for more. And each of us knows this, that oppression is not just external. Right? It's our own flesh our own flesh that wars against the Holy Spirit who lives within. Daily, moment by moment, we fight against the cravings in ourselves for things that we know God hates. We fight that. And we know what we ought to do. But so often we fall for lesser things, counterfeit joy as Aaron was talking about in Sunday school this morning, folly. We listen to the voice of folly and we allow ourselves to get tripped up. And we know what we should do, the good things to do. But more often than we want to admit it, we end up thinking and doing what is evil. And each of us, if we're honest, we agonize with the Apostle Paul who so accurately describes our plight 
wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, he exalts in the truth of it through Jesus Christ our Lord. He will deliver us from this body of death. We will fight the battle every day, and we will win. But the battle's not going away, brothers and sisters. And don't think it's over. We hold on to the hope that Christ will return and be delivered from this body of death. We're in between people. The Lord gave Abram the details about the land that his descendants would possess. He was told the boundaries from the Nile to the Euphrates. That's Eden. Look back at Genesis 2. They're getting it back. And the people that would be dispossessed, that's the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, lots of sites. And under Joshua's leadership, the Israelites did possess the land, but they lost it again. And we long for it. We long for that land, not a, not a physical land. We want to get back to the garden. I'm not talking Woodstock. We want to get back to that place where there's un, in, unhindered fellowship with the Lord. And Jesus promised a place for his own. He said this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That is what we hold on to, brothers and sisters. We hold on to that. I love my church. I love my family. And the Lord has, has so richly blessed me in so many ways. But some days I am weary of the wait. And I want that place that he has prepared. I want that place when I'm completed and no longer tempted. And there will be no competition in my mind, no distractions to fellowship with the Lord. I think you want that too. But in the meantime, until Christ returns, we hold on to the promise. God has proven faithful. We can count on that. And we can be comforted in the waiting. Because God is determined to save others too. There's good news in this. And it may feel long to us. It may feel long. But the fact that we have an eternity with the Lord we can delight in the foretaste of that glory when we gather in the name of Jesus like this, when we partake of this meal together, when we work to carry out the mission that he has given to us. Peter exhorts in his second letter this, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So while we wait, do not overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day as, as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. The Lord is not slow. And the good news in the waiting is that he doesn't want anybody to perish. And there are people that we're all praying for that we don't want to perish. So I'll wait. And you'll wait too. 
That day will come. The Lord's determining. But while we wait, He saves. And we can hold on to His promise. Well, our exodus is Jesus Himself. I know, sadly, some here are still wandering around in Ur. You're still beholden to a spiritual Pharaoh called sin. Listen to me, friend. The sign of your rescue is the cross of Christ. There, Jesus, the Son of God, bore in His own body the very consequence of your sin, your failure to keep the covenant with God. And if you have trusted in Him, the reality of what we have will be revealed someday. And we will have the full experience of what Christ has promised. In that day, Christ will return for His own. And so till that day, we hold on to His promise. It's a sure covenant made through His own blood at the cross. And so we wait. We wait. Holding to the promise of His return. So that's what we'll do. God is faithful. We live in between. We've been rescued out of Egypt. We've been given the sign Christ crucified, and now we wait for him to return as we enjoy the spiritual blessings that we have now as we gather with his people together and remind each other of the promise that is yet to be fully revealed and fulfilled. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you grant us this insight into your word this understanding of what you have accomplished. There really is nothing new. What you've done from the beginning is what you keep doing. And we're the dull ones. We're the ones who don't seem to get it. And so we thank you, Father, for the reminder. Reminder of your grace to rescue us. A reminder of the sign that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. God, grant us the patience to wait while we wait for the promises to be fully realized that day when every knee will bow, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Keep us faithful to that day. We pray in Christ's name.